Chapter Six of the Knights of Arthur by Frederick Pohl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. In Consolidated Edison's big power plant, the guard was friendly. I hear the major's over on your boat, pal. Big doings. Got a lot of girls there, eh? He bent, snickering, to look at my pass. That's right, pal. I said and slugged him. Arthur screamed at me with a shrill blast of steam as I came in, but only once. I wasn't there for conversation. I began ripping apart his comfy little home of steel braces and copper wires, and it didn't take much more than a minute before I had him free. And that was very fortunate, because, although I had tied up the guard, I hadn't done it very well and it was just about the time I had Arthur's steel case tucked under my arm that I heard a yelling and bellowing from down the stairs. The guard had got free. "'Keep calm, Arthur,' I ordered sharply. "'We'll get out of this. Don't you worry.' But he wasn't worried, or anyway didn't show it, since he couldn't. I was the one who was worried. I was up on the second floor of the plant, in the control center, with only one staircase going down that I knew about, and that one thoroughly guarded by a man with a grudge against me. Me, I had Arthur, and no weapon, and I hadn't a doubt in the world that there were other guards around, and that my friend would have them after me before long. Problem I took a deep breath and swallowed, and considered jumping out the window, but it wasn't far enough to the ground. Feet pounded up the stairs, more than two of them. With Arthur dragging me down on one side, I hurried fast as I could along the steel galleries that surrounded the biggest boiler. It was a nice choice of alternatives. If I stayed quiet, they would find me. If I ran, they would hear me, and then find me. But ahead there was, what, something? A flight of stairs, it looked like, going out, and yes, up. Up? But I was already on the second floor. Hey, you! Somebody bellowed from behind me. I didn't stop to consider. I ran. It wasn't steps, not exactly. It was a chain of coal scoops on a long derrick arm, a moving bucket arrangement for unloading fuel from barges. It did go up, though, and more importantly, it went out. The bucket arm was stretched across the clogged roadway below to a loading tower that hung over the water. If I could get there, I might be able to get down. If I could get down, yes, I could see it. There were three or four mahogany motor launches tied to the foot of the tower, and nobody around. I looked over my shoulder and didn't like what I saw, and scuttled up that chain of enormous buckets like a roach on a washboard, one hand for me and one hand for Arthur. Thank heaven I had a good lead on my pursuers. I needed it. I was on the bucket chain while they were still almost a city block behind me, along the galleries. I was halfway across the roadway, afraid to look down, before they reached the butt-end of the chain. Clash! Clatter! Clank! The bucket under me jerked and clattered and nearly threw me into the street. 
one of those jokers had turned on the conveyor. It was a good trick, all right, but not quite in time. I made a flying jump, and I was on the tower. I didn't stop to thumb my nose at them, but I thought of it. I went down those steel steps, breathing like a spouting whale in a minute flat, and jumping out across the concrete, coal-smeared yard toward the moored launches. Quickly enough, I guess, but with nothing at all to spare, because although I hadn't seen anyone there, there was a guard. He popped out of a doorway, blinking foolishly, and overhead the guards at the conveyor belt were screaming at him. It took him a second to figure out what was going on, and by that time I was in a launch, cast off the rope, kicked it free, and fumbled for the starting button. It took me several seconds to realize that a rope was required, that in fact there was no button, and by then I was floating yards away, but the pudgy, pop-eyed guard was also in a launch, and he didn't have to fumble. He knew. He got his motor started a fraction of a second before me, and there he was, coming at me, set to ram, or so it looked. I wrenched at the wheel and brought the boat hard over, but he swerved, too, at the last moment, and brought up something that looked a little like a spear and a little like a sickle, and turned out to be a boat-hook. I ducked just in time. It sizzled over my head as he swung and crashed against the windshield. Hunks of safety glass splashed out over the forward deck, but better that than my head. Boat-hooks, eh? I had a boat-hook, too. If he didn't have another weapon, I was perfectly willing to play. I'd been sitting and taking it long enough, and I was very much attracted by the idea of fighting back. The guard recovered his balance, swore at me, fought the wheel around, and came back. We both curved out toward the center of the East River in intersecting arcs. We closed. He swung first. I ducked. And from a crouch, while he was off balance, I caught him in the shoulder with the hook. He made a mighty splash. I throttled down the motor long enough to see that he was still conscious. Touché, Buster, I said, and set course for the return trip down around the foot of Manhattan back toward the Queen. It took a while, but that was all right. It gave everybody a nice long time to get plastered. I sneaked aboard carrying Arthur and turned him over to Vern. Then I rejoined the Major. He was making an inspection tour of the ship, what he called an inspection, after his fashion. He peered into the engine room and said, Ah, fine. He stared at the generators that were turning over and nodded when I explained we needed them for power for lights and everything and said, Ah, of course. He opened a couple of stateroom doors at random and said, Ah, nice. And he went up on the flying bridge with me and such of his officers as could still walk and said, Ah. Then he said in a totally different tone, "'What the devil's the matter over there?' He was staring east through the muggy haze. I saw right away what it was that was bothering him. Easy because I knew where to look. The power plant way over on the east side was billowing smoke. 
Where's Vern Engdahl? That gadget of his isn't working right. You mean Arthur? I mean that brain in a bottle. It's Engdahl's responsibility, you know. Vern came up out of the wheelhouse and cleared his throat. <clears> throat> uh, Major, he said earnestly, I think there's some trouble over there. Maybe you ought to go look for yourself. Trouble? I, uh, hear there have been power failures, Vern said lamely. Uh, don't you think you ought to inspect it? I mean, just in case there's something serious. The Major stared at him frostily, and then his mood changed. He took a drink from the glass in his hand, quickly finishing it off. Ah, he said, hell with it. <laughs> why spoil a good party? If there's going to be power failures, why, let them be. That's my motto. Vern and I looked at each other. He shrugged slightly, meaning, well, we tried. And I shrugged slightly, meaning, what did you expect? And then he glanced upward, meaning, take a look at what's there. But I didn't really have to look, because I heard what it was. In fact, I'd been hearing it for some time. It was the Major's entire Air Force, two helicopters swirling around us at an average altitude of a hundred feet or so. They showed up bright against the gathering clouds overhead, and I looked at them with considerable interest, partly because I considered it an even-money bet that one of them would be playing crumple-fender with our stacks, partly because I had an idea that they were not there solely for show. I said to the Major, "'Chief, aren't they coming a little close? I mean, it's your ship and all, but what if one of them takes a spill into the bridge while we're here?' He grinned. "'They know better,' he bragged. "'And besides, I want them close. I mean, if anything went wrong.' I said in a tone that showed as much deep hurt as I could manage, "'Sir, what could go wrong?' "'Oh, you know,' he patted my shoulder limply. "'Uh, no offense?' he asked. I shook my head. "'Well,' I said, "'let's go below.' All of it was done carefully as could be. The only thing was we forgot about the typewriters. We got everybody, or as near as we could, into the grand salon where the food was, and right there on a table at the end of the hall was one of the typewriters clacking away. Vern had rigged them up with rolls of paper instead of sheets, and maybe that was ingenious, but it was also a headache just then, because the typewriter was banging out, Left four, thirteen, fourteen, and twenty-one boilers with a full head of steam, and the safety valves locked Boy, I tell you, when those things let go, you're going to hear a noise that'll knock your hat off. The Major inquired politely. Something to do with the ship? Oh, that, said Vern. Yeah, just a little uh, something to do with the ship. Uh, say, Major, here's the bar. Real scotch, see? Look at the label. The Major glanced at him with faint contempt. Well, he'd had the pick of the greatest collection of high-priced liquor stores in the world for ten years, so no wonder. But he allowed Vern to press a drink on him. And the typewriter kept rattling. 
Looks like rain any minute now. Who, boy, I'm glad I won't be in those whirly birds when the storm starts, say, Vern. Why don't you ever answer me, Q, Q? Isn't it about time to take off, X, X, X? I mean, get under way, Q, Q. Some of the clerks, typists, domestic personnel, and others, that was the way they were listed on the T.O., it was only coincidence that the major had married them all, were staring at the typewriter. Drinks! Vern called nervously. Come on, girls, drinks! The major poured himself a stiff shot and asked, What is that thing, a teletype or something? That's right, Vern said, trailing after him as the major wandered over to inspect it. I give those boilers about ten more minutes, Sam. Well, what about it, Q.Q.? Ready to shove off, Q.Q.? The major said, frowning faintly, Ah, uh, that reminds me of something. Now what is it? More scotch? Vern cried. Major, a little more scotch? The major ignored him, scowling. One of the clerk's typist said, Honey, you know what it is? It's like that cross you had, remember? It was on our wedding night, and you just got it, and you kept asking it to tell you limericks. The major snapped his fingers. Knew I'd get it, he glowed. Then abruptly he scowled again and turned to face Vern and me. Say, he began. I said weakly, the boilers. The major stared at me, then glanced out the window. What boilers? he demanded. It's just a thunderstorm. Been building up all day. Now, what about this? Is that thing... Vern was paying him no attention. Thunderstorm? he yelled. Arthur, are you listening? Are the helicopters gone? Yes, yes, yes. Then shove off, Arthur. Shove off. The typewriter rattled and slammed madly. The major yelled angrily. Now, listen to me, you. I'm asking you a question. But we didn't have to answer, because there was a thrumming and a throbbing underfoot, and then one of the clerk's typists screamed, In the dark! She pointed at a porthole. It's moving! Well, we got out of there, barely in time. And then it was up to Arthur. We had the whole ship to roam around in, and there were plenty of places to hide. They had the whole ship to search. And Arthur was the whole ship. Because it was Arthur, all right. Brought in and hooked up by Vern, attained to his greatest dream and ambition. He was skipper of a superliner, and more than any skipper had ever been. The ship was his body, as the prosthetic tank had never been. The keel his belly, the screws his feet, the engines his heart and lungs, and every moving part that could be hooked into central control his many, many hands. Search for us? <laughs> they were lucky they could move at all. Fire control washed them with salt water hoses directed by Arthur's brain. 
Watertight doors, proof against sinking, locked them away from us at Arthur's whim. The big bull whistle overhead brayed like a clamoring Gabriel, and the ship's bells tinkled and clanged. Arthur backed that enormous ship out of its berth like a racing skull on the shulkel. The four giant screws lashed the water into white foam, and then the thin mud they sucked up into tan. And the ship backed, swerved, lashed the water, stopped, and staggered crazily forward. Arthur brayed at the Statue of Liberty, tooted goodbye to Staten Island, fainted a charge at Sandy Hook, and really laid back his ears and raced once he got to deep water past the moored lightship. We were off. Well, from there on it was easy. We let Arthur have his fun with the Major and the bodyguards, and by the sodden, whimpering shape they were in when they came out, it must really have been fun for him. There were just the three of us, and only Vern and I had guns. But Arthur had the Queen Elizabeth, and that put the odds on our side. We gave the Major a choice. Row back to Coney Island. We offered him a boat free of charge or come along with us as cabin-boy. He cast one dim-eyed look at the hundred and nine clerk's typist, and at Amy, who would never be the hundred and tenth, and then he shrugged, and game loser said, Ah, why not? I'll come along. And why not, when you come to think of it? I mean, ruling a city is nice and all that, but a sea voyage is a refreshing change. And while a hundred and nine to one is a respectable female-male ratio, still it must be wearing, and eighty to thirty isn't so bad either. At least I guess that was what was in the Major's mind. I know it was what was in mine. And I discovered that it was in Amy's, for the first thing she did was to march me over to the typewriter and say, You've had it, Sam. We'll dispose with the wedding march. Just get your friend Arthur here to marry us. Arthur? The captain, she said. We're on the high seas, and he's empowered to perform marriages. Vern looked at me and shrugged, meaning, You asked for this one, boy. And I looked at him and shrugged, meaning, It could be worse. And indeed, it could. We got our ship. We got our ship's company, because, naturally, there wasn't any use stealing a big ship for just a couple of us. We'd had to manage to get a sizable colony aboard. That was the whole idea. The world, in fact, was ours. It could have been very much worse indeed, even though Arthur was laughing so hard as he performed the ceremony that he jammed up all his keys. End of Part 6 End of The Knights of Arthur by Frederick Pohl This book recorded by Phil Schenebert